Chapter Sixteen, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen, The Search Journey, Part One. From my own diary. Sleep after toil, port after stormy seas, ease after war, death after life, does greatly please. Spencer, the Fairy Queen. October 28th, Hut Point. A beautiful day. We finished digging out the stables for the mules this morning, and brought in some blubber this afternoon. The bluff has its cap on, but otherwise the sky is nearly clear. There is a little cumulus between White Island and the bluff, the first I have seen this year on the barrier. It is most noticeable how much snow has disappeared off the rocks and shingle here. October 29th, Hut Point. The mule party, under right, consisting of Gran, Nelson, Crean, Hooper, Williamson, Keown and Lashley, left Cape Evans at 10.30, and arrived here at 5 p.m., after a good march in perfect weather. They leave Debenham and Archer in the hut, and I am afraid it will be dull work for them the next three months. Archer turned out early, and made some cakes which they have brought with them. They camped for lunch seven miles from Cape Evans. This is the start of the search journey. Everything which forethought can do has been done and to a point twelve miles south of Corner Camp the mules will be travelling light, owing to the depots which have been laid. The barometer has been falling the last few days, and it is now low, while the bluff is overcast. Yet it does not look like blizzard to come. Two are daily penguins. The first came to Cape Evans yesterday, and a skewer was seen there on the 24th. So summer is really here. October 30th, Hut Point it is now 8 p.m. and the mules are just off, looking very fit, keeping well together, and giving no trouble at the start. Their leaders turned in this afternoon, and tonight begins the new routine of night marching, just the same as last year. It did look thick on the barrier this afternoon, and it was quite a question whether it was advisable for them to start, but it is rolling away now, being apparently only fog, which is now disappearing before some wind, or perhaps because the sun is losing its power. I think they will have a good march. November 2nd, 5am, Biscuit Depot. Atkinson, Dimitri and I, with two dog-teams, left Hut Point last night at 8.30. We have had a coldish night's run, minus 21 degrees when we left after lunch, minus 17 degrees now. The surface was very heavy for the dogs, there being a soft coating of snow over everything since we last came this way, due, no doubt, to the foggy days we have been having lately. The sledge-meter makes it nearly sixteen miles. The mule party has two days start on us, and their programme is to do twelve miles a day to one ton depot. Their tracks are fairly clear, but there has been some drift from the east since they passed. We picked up our cairns well. We are pretty wet, having been running nearly all the way. November 3rd, early morning. Fourteen and a half miles. We are here at Corner Camp, but not without a struggle. We left the biscuit depot at 6.30pm yesterday, and it is now 4am. The last six miles took us four hours, which is very bad going for dogs, and we have all been running most of the way. The surface was very bad, crusty and also soft. It was blowing with some low drift, and overcast and snowing. We followed the drifted up mule tracks with difficulty, and are lucky to have got so far. The temperature has been a constant zero. There is a note here from Wright about the mules which left here last night. They only saw two small crevasses on the way, 
but Khan Sahib got into the tide crack at the edge of the barrier and had to be hauled out with a rope. The mules are going fast over the first part of the day, but show a tendency to stop towards the end. They keep well together except Khan Sahib, who is a slower mule than the others. It is now blowing with some drift, but nothing bad, and beyond the bluff it seems to be clear. We are all pretty tired. November 4th, early morning. Well, this has been a disappointing day, but we must hope that all will turn out well. We turned out at 2 a.m. yesterday, and then it was clearing all round, a mild blizzard having been blowing since we camped. We started at five in some wind and low drift. It was good travelling weather, and except for the first three miles the surface has been fair to good, and the last part very good. Yet the dogs could not manage their load, which according to programme should go up a further £150 each team here at Dimitri Depot. One of our dogs, Kusoy, gave out, but we managed to get him along tied to the stern of the sledge, because the team behind tried to get at him and he realised he had better mend his ways. We camped for lunch when Tresor was also pretty well done. We were then on a very good surface, but were often pushing the sledge to get it along. The mule party were gone when we started again, and probably did not see us. We came on to the depot, but we cannot hope to get along far on bad surfaces if we cannot get along on good ones. The note, left by Wright, states that their sledge-meter has proved useless, and this leaves all three parties of us with only one, which is not very reliable now. So it has been decided that the dogs must return from 80 degrees 30 minutes, or 81 degrees at the farthest, and instead of four mules, as was intended, going on from there, five must go on instead. The dogs can therefore now leave behind much of their own weights, and take on the mules' weights instead. And this is the part where the mules' weights are so heavy. Perhaps the new scheme is the best, but it puts everything on the mules from 80 degrees 30 minutes. If they will do, it all is well. If they won't, we have nothing to fall back on. Midnight, November 4th to 5th. It has been blowing and drifting all day. We turned out again at midday on the 4th, and remade the depot, with what we were to leave owing to the new programme. This is all rather sad, but it can't be helped. It was then blowing a summer blizzard, and we were getting frostbitten when we started, following the mule tracks. There were plenty of cairns for us to pick up, and with the lighter loads and a very good surface we came along much better. Lunching at eight miles we arrived just as the mule party had finished their hoosh, preparatory to starting, and it has been decided that the mules are not to go on tonight, but we will all start marching together tomorrow. The news from this party is on the whole good, not the least good being that the sledge-meter is working again, though not very reliably. They are marching well, and at a great pace except for Khan Sahib. Gulab, however, is terribly chafed, both by his collar and by his breast-harness, both of which have been tried. He has a great raw place where this fits on the one side, and is chafed, but not so badly, on the other side. Lal Khan is pulling well, but is eating very little. Pyari is doing very well, but has some difficulty in lifting her leg when in soft snow. Abdullah seems to be considered the best mule at present. On the whole, good hearing. Wright's sleeping bag is bad, letting in light through cracks in a good many places, but he makes very little of it, and does not seem to be cold, saying it is good ventilation. The mule cloths, which have a rough lining to their outside canvas, are collecting a lot of snow, and all the mules are matted with cakes of snow. They are terrible rope-eaters, cloth-eaters, anything to eat, though they are not hungry. And they have even learned to pull 
their picketing buckles undone, and go walking about the camp. Indeed, Nelson says that the only time when Khan Sahib does not cast himself adrift is when he is ready to start on the march. November 6th, early morning. We had a really good lie-in yesterday, and after the hard slogging with the dogs during the last few days, I for one was very glad of it. We came on behind, and in sight of the mules this last march, and the change in the dogs was wonderful. Where it had been a job to urge them on over quite as good a surface yesterday, today for some time we could not get off the sledge except for short runs, although we had taken £312 weight off the mules and loaded it on to the dogs. We had a most glorious night for marching, and it is now bright sunlight, and the animal's fur is quite warm where the sun strikes it. We have just had a bit of a fight over the dog food, Vaida going for Dick, and now the others are somewhat excited, and there are constant growlings and murmurings. The camp makes more of a mark than last year, for the mules are dark, while the ponies were white or grey, and the cloths are brown instead of light green. The consequence is that the camp shows up from a long distance off. We are building cairns at regular distances, and there should be no difficulty in keeping on the course in fair weather, at any rate, now in the land of the big Sastrugi. Erebus is beginning to look small, but we could see an unusually big smoke from the crater all day. November 7th, early morning. Not an easy day. It was minus nine degrees and overcast when we turned out, and the wind was then dying down, but it had been blowing up to force five, with surface drift during the day. We started in a bad light, and the surface, which was the usual hard surface common here, with big sastrugi, was covered by a thin layer of crystals which were then falling. This naturally made it very much harder pulling. We, with the dogs, have been running nearly all of the twelve miles, and I, for one, am tired. At lunch Atkinson thought he saw a tent away to our right. The very thought of it came as a shock, but it proved to be a false alarm. We have been keeping a sharp lookout for the gear which was left about this part by the last return party, but have seen no sign of it. It is now minus fourteen degrees, but the sun is shining brightly in a clear sky, and it feels beautifully warm. It seems a very regular thing for the sky to cloud over as the sun gets low towards nightfall, and directly the sun begins to rise again, the clouds disappear in a most wonderful way. November 8th, early morning. Last night's twelve miles was quite cold for this time of year, being minus 23 degrees at lunch, and now minus 18, but it is calm, with bright sun, and this temperature feels warm. However, there are some frostbites as a result, both Nelson and Hooper having swollen faces, the same powder and crystals have been on the surface, but we have carried the good bluff surface so far, being now four miles beyond Bluff Depot. This is fortunate, and to the best of my recollection, we were already getting on to a soft surface at this point last summer. If so, there must have been more wind here this year than last, which, according to the winter we have had, seems probable. We made up the Bluff Depot after lunch, putting up a new flag and building up the cairn, leaving two cases of dog biscuit for the returning dog teams. It is curious that the drift to leeward of the cairn, that is north-north-east, was quite soft, the snow all round and the drifts on either side being hard, exceptionally hard in fact. Why this drift should remain soft when a drift in the same place is unusually hard is difficult to explain. All is happy in the mule camp. They have given Lal a drink of water and he has started to eat, which is good news. Some of the mules seem snow-blind, and they are all now wearing their blinkers. I have just heard that Gran swung the thermometer at four this morning and found it minus twenty-nine degrees. Nelson's face is a sight, his nose a mere swollen lump, 
frostbitten cheeks, and his goggles have frosted him where the rims touched his face. Poor Marie! November 9th, early morning. Twelve more miles to the good, and we must consider ourselves fortunate in still carrying on the same good surface, which is almost, if not quite, as good as that of yesterday. This is the only time I have ever seen a hard surface here, not more than fifteen miles from one ton, and it looks as if there had been much higher winds. The Sastrugi, which have been facing south-west, are now beginning to run a little more westerly. I believe this to be quite a different wind circulation from Ross Island, which as a whole gets its wind from the bluff. The bluff is, I believe, the dividing line, though big general blizzards sweep over the whole, irrespective of local areas of circulation. This was amply corroborated by our journey out here last autumn. Well, this is better than then. Just round here we had a full blizzard, and minus thirty-three degrees. November 10th, early morning. A perfect night for marching, but about minus twenty degrees, and chilly for waiting about. The mules are going well, but Lal Khan is thinning down a lot. Abdullah and Khan Sahib are also off their feed. Their original allowance of eleven pounds of oats and oil cake has been reduced to nine pounds, and they are not eating this. The dogs took another three hundred pounds off them today and pulled it very well. The surface has been splendidly hard, which is most surprising. Wright does not think that there has been an abnormal deposition of snow the last winter. He says it is about one and a half feet, which is much the same as last year. The mules are generally not sinking in more than two inches, but in places, especially latterly, they have been in five or six. This is the first we have had this year of crusts, and some of them today have been exceptionally big. Two at lunch must have lasted several seconds. The dogs seem to think the devil is after them when one of these goes off, and put on a terrific spurt. It is interesting to watch them snuffing in the hoof-marks of the mules, where there is evidently some scent left. In these temperatures they are always kicking their legs about at the halts. As the sun gained power this morning a thick fog came up very suddenly. I believe this is a sign of good weather. November the 11th. Early morning. One ton depot. Wright got a latitude sight yesterday, putting us six miles from one ton, and our sledge-meter shows five and three quarters, and here we are. More frostbite this morning, and it was pretty cold starting in a fair wind and minus seven degrees temperature. We have continued this really splendid surface, and now the Sastrugi are pointing a little more to the south of southwest. While there are not such big mounds, the surface does not yet show any signs of getting bad. There were the most beautiful cloud effects as we came along. A deep black to the west, shading into long lines of grey and lemon yellow around the sun, with a vertical shaft through them and a bright orange horizon. Now there is a brilliant parhelion. Given sun, two days here are never alike. Whatever the monotony of the barrier may be, there is endless variety in the sky and I do not believe that anywhere in the world such beautiful colours are to be seen. I had a fair panic as we came up to the depot. I did not see that one body of the ponies had gone ahead of the others and camped, but ahead of the travelling ponies was the depot looking very black, and I thought that there was a tent. It would be too terrible to find that, though one knew that we had done all we could, if we had done something different we could have saved them. And then we find that the provisions we left here for them in the tank are soaked with paraffin. How this has happened is a mystery, but I think that the oil in the excess tin, which was very full, must have forced its way out in a sudden rise of temperature in a winter blizzard, and though the tin was not touching the tank, it has found its way in. Altogether things seemed rather dismal, but a visit to the mules is cheering, for they seem very fit as a whole, and their leaders are cheerful. 
There are three sacks of oats here. Had we known it, we would have saved a lot of weight, but we didn't, and we have plenty with what we have bought, so they will be of little use to us. There is no compressed fodder, which would have been very useful, for the animals which are refusing oats would probably eat it. Gulab has a very bad chafe, but he is otherwise fit, and it does not seem possible in this life to kill a mule because of chafing. It is a great deal to know that he does not seem to be hurt by it, and pulls away gallantly. Crean says he had to run a mile this morning with Rani. Marie says he is inventing some new ways of walking, one step forward and one hop back, in order to keep warm when leading Khan Sahib. Up to date we cannot say that the fates have been unkind to us. November 12th, early morning. Lunch, 2.30am. I am afraid our sledge-meters do not agree over this morning's march. The programme is to do 13 miles a day if possible from here, that is seven and a half before lunch, and five and a half afterwards. We could see two cairns of last year on our right as we came along. We have got on to a softer surface now, and there is bad news of Lal Khan, and it will depend on this after lunch march whether he must be shot this evening or not. It was intended to shoot a mule two marches from one ton, but till just lately it had not been thought that it must be Lal Khan. He is getting very slow and came into camp with Khan Sahib. The trouble, of course, is that he will not eat. He has hardly eaten, they say, a day's ration since he left Hut Point, and he can't work on nothing. It is now minus sixteen degrees, with a slight southerly wind. Nearly midday, eleven to twelve miles south of one ton. We have found them. To say it has been a ghastly day cannot express it. It is too bad for words. The tent was there about half a mile to the west of our course, and close to a drifted-up cairn of last year. It was covered with snow and looked just like a cairn, only an extra gathering of snow showing where the ventilator was, and so we found the door. It was drifted up some two to three feet to windward. Just by the side, two pairs of ski-sticks, or the topmost half of them, appeared over the snow, and a bamboo which proved to be the mast of the sledge. Their story I am not going to try and put down. They got to this point on March 21st, and on the 29th all was over. Nor will I try and put down what there was in that tent. Scott lay in the centre, Bill on his left, with his head towards the door, and Birdie on his right, lying with his feet towards the door. Bill especially had died very quietly, with his hands folded over his chest, Birdie also quietly. Oates's death was a very fine one. We go on tomorrow to try and find his body. He was glad that his regiment would be proud of him. They reached the Pole a month after Amundsen. We have everything, records, diaries, etc. They have, among other things, several rolls of photographs, a meteorological log kept up to March 13th, and, considering all things, a great many geological specimens, and they have stuck to everything. It is magnificent that men in such case should go on pulling everything that they have died to gain. I think they realised their coming end a long time before. By Scott's head was a tobacco, there is also a bag of tea. Atkinson gathered every one together and read to them the account of Oates's death given in Scott's diary. Scott expressly states that he wished it known. His, Scott's, last words are, For God's sake, take care of our people. Then Atkinson read the lesson from the burial service from Corinthians. Perhaps it has never been read in more a magnificent cathedral, and under more impressive circumstances, for it is a grave which kings must envy. 
then some prayers from the burial service, and there, with the floor-cloth under them, and the tent above, we buried them in their sleeping-bags, and surely their work has not been in vain. That scene can never leave my memory. We, with the dogs, had seen Wright turn away from the course by himself, and the mule-party swerve right-handed ahead of us. He had seen what he thought was a cairn, and then something looking black by its side. A vague kind of wonder gradually gave way to a real alarm. We came up to them, all halted. Wright came across to us. It is the tent. I do not know how he knew. Just a waste of snow. To our right the remains of one of last year's cairns, a mere mound, and then three feet of bamboo sticking quite alone out of the snow, and then another mound of snow, perhaps a trifle more pointed. We walked up to it. I do not think we quite realised. Not for very long. But someone reached up to a projection of snow and brushed it away. The green flap of the ventilator of the tent appeared, and we knew that the door was below. Two of us entered, through the funnel of the outer tent, and through the bamboos on which was stretched the lining of the inner tent. There was some snow, not much, between the two linings, but inside we could see nothing. The snow had drifted out the light. There was nothing to do but to dig the tent out. Soon we could see the outlines. There were three men here. Bowers and Wilson were sleeping in their bags. Scott had thrown back the flaps of his bag at the end. His left hand was stretched over Wilson, his lifelong friend. Beneath the head of his bag, between the bag and the floor-cloth, was the green wallet in which he carried his diary. The brown books of diary were inside, and on the floor-cloth were some letters. Everything was tidy. The tent had been pitched as well as ever, with the door facing down the assastrugi, the bamboos with a good spread, the tent itself taut and shipshape. There was no snow inside the inner lining. There were some loose pannikins from the cooker, the ordinary tent-gear, the personal belongings, and a few more letters and records, personal and scientific. Near Scott was a lamp, formed from a tin and some lamp-wick off a finesco. It had been used to burn the little methylated spirit which remained. I think that Scott had used it to help him to write up to the end. I feel sure that he had died last, and once I had thought that he would not go so far as some of the others. We never realised how strong that man was, mentally and physically, until now. We sorted out the gear, records, papers, diaries, spare clothing, letters, chronometers, finesco, socks, a flag. There was even a book which I had lent Bill for the journey, and he had brought it back. Somehow we learnt that Amundsen had been to the Pole, and that they too had been to the Pole, and both items of news seemed to be of no importance whatever. There was a letter there from Amundsen to King Hakon. There were the personal chatty little notes we had left for them on the Beardmore. How much more important to us than all the royal letters in the world. We dug down the bamboo which had brought us to this place. It led to the sledge many feet down, and had been rigged there as a mast. And on the sledge were some more odds and ends, a piece of paper from the biscuit box, Bower's meteorological log, and the geological specimens, thirty pounds of them, all of the first importance. Drifted over also with the harness, ski, and ski sticks. Hour after hour, it so it seemed to me, Atkinson sat in our tent and read. The finder was to read the diary, and then it was to be brought home. These were Scott's instructions written on the cover. But Atkinson said he was only going to read sufficient to know what had happened, and after that they were brought home unopened and unread. When he had the outline, we all gathered together, and he read to us the message to the public, and the account of Oates's death, which Scott had expressly wished to be known. We never moved them. 
We took the bamboos of the tent away, and the tent itself covered them, and over them we built the cairn. I do not know how long we were there, but when all was finished and the chapter of Corinthians had been read, it was midnight of some day, the sun was dipping low above the pole, the barrier was almost in shadow, and the sky was blazing, sheets and sheets of iridescent clouds. The cairn and cross stood dark against a glory of burnished gold. End of chapter 16, part 1